0: Uh, My name is Aubrey Sequeira. I am uh, the senior pastor of the Evangelical Community Church of Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates. Uh, That's where I have served for the past six years. I was born and raised in South India, and it is a real privilege and joy to be with you this uh, afternoon. Uh, Tomorrow, I will be talking about honor and shame and the cross of Christ but for this breakout we are focused on the issue of cost in missions and uh, in a few moments you'll explain why this is such an important issue but if you would just pray with me uh, before we start heavenly father we thank you for this time i pray that as we think about the important issue of cost you would remind us that we are to regard no one according to the flesh, that in Christ Jesus we are new creation, and Father, that you would spur us on to be faithful in proclaiming the gospel and making disciples and calling people to full and complete repentance and finding their identity in Christ alone. It's in his name we pray, amen. So if we're going to talk about caste and missions, we have to begin by talking about Donald McGavran, And if you don't know who Donald McGavran is, then he's going to be the primary person that we're talking about and dialoguing with through this session, all right? Uh, Donald McGavran was the founding dean of the School of World Missions at Fuller Seminary, He was a missionary to India in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, and then came back and founded the School of World Missions at Fuller Seminary. Uh, Even if you don't know who Donald McGavran is, the odds are you have likely been influenced by him in some way or another with regard to thinking about missions, right? All of the movement-based missions that we see in the missions landscape today go back to Donald McGavran. So church planting movements, disciple making movements. Uh, those are just the, uh, the fruit that springs from the root of McGavran's church growth principles. All right? Uh, the whole thinking of, you know, UPGs and unreached people groups and how we should plant churches among unreached people groups. I'm going to make a distinction between unreached people groups and unreached language groups. All of that goes back to the thought of Donald McGavran. Right. So his church growth principles, Donald McGavran's church growth principles, have tremendously influenced the shape of missions today. Without Donald McGavran, you would have never had uh, the whole categorization of peoples into unreached people groups. Without Donald McGavran, you'd have never had the Joshua Project movement methodologies, some of the forms of contextualization that you see. You name it; it all goes back to McGavran, and crucially, McGavran's encounter with the caste system as a missionary in India, right? So as uh, we seek to understand how caste and missions intersect, we must talk about Donald McGavran. So uh, here's a three-part outline. First, I'm going to outline the caste system for you, all right? If you've never lived in India, you're probably unfamiliar with the caste system and how it operates. I'm going to outline that for us. Next, I'm going to describe Donald McGavran's view of caste and how his experience with the caste system shaped his missions methodology, his missiology. And then finally, I will respond to McGavran's church growth missiology. I'm going to critique him uh, with five main arguments. And uh, as I'm critiquing McGavran, I'm really critiquing the foundation of everything that we call movement based missions. Right, so first, the origins of the caste system. Uh, in nineteen eighty-five, an article was published by a guy named Ebenezer Sundar Raj uh, on the origins of the caste system, and he's very clear and helpful. He says the caste system is at, you know kind of connected to four factors. Number one is racial, second is occupational third is migrational, and fourth is religious. Uh, Sundar Raj traces back the origins of the caste system to the invasion of India by the cent- by Central Asian people called the Aryans. Okay, the Indo-Aryans uh, came into the Indian subcontinent probably 3,000 years ago And as they invaded the land, as they conquered the existing population, the existing populations of India were dark-skinned, the Indo-Aryans are more light-skinned, right? Uh, The people who were not annihilated were enslaved. And they were subjected to an ethnic gradation based on skin color. That's the beginnings of the caste system, right? And then the Aryan desire to preserve the purity of their bloodline and their culture... Uh, resulted in they, they begin to draw firm boundaries between peoples of these various grades of caste, right? They, uh, they prohibit intermarriage or any kind of social dealings with non-Aryan peoples. Uh, they then invented a theological system to provide divine sanction and to legitimize the subjugation of the lower and weaker populations, so the claim is that people of the higher castes are made from the head of the god, the highest caste, and then the next person is you know, from the uh, trunk, and then finally the lowest castes are from the feet, and then you have these people who are then called untouchables. So uh, the enslaved people, people of lower caste, were forced to take up you know, occupations that were lower in society, and uh, that begins to tie caste to occupational factors. Uh, people begin to migrate. Entire groups of people begin to migrate to different parts of the country. And there you have migrational factors. All right? So at the top of the ladder is the priestly Brahmin caste. And then you keep going down all the way to the untouchables who are really pariahs in society. This caste system was enshrined in the sacred scriptures of Hinduism. So it's been viewed now for 3,000 years As a divinely sanctioned ordering of society. So, this is crucial. Caste doesn't just give you an ethnic identity, it's not just tied to ethnic identity, it is also a socio religious identity. Okay, it's vital to recognize that. Within this system, a person's caste identity carries with it your rank on the totem pole of human dignity. And it receives its impetus from the Hindu scriptures, the Vedas and the Bhagavad Gita. So it's part and parcel of the Hindu worldview. It can't be separated from Hinduism. And it pervades India in every sphere of society. So in politics, business, industry, the nation is controlled by those of upper caste. Uh, I was uh, doing a little, I love sports, I love cricket, which is India's... Big sport. Um, Brahmins, the highest caste, represent 5% of the population of the entire country. But 50% of all cricketers who have represented India nationally are Brahmins. So the occupational aspect of caste means that certain occupations are reserved for people of certain castes. For instance, no person of a respectable caste will ever clean a toilet. That's reserved only for the lowest of the low. Uh, It also results in segregated neighborhoods. So if you go to India's big cities, even in the big cities, in the urban melting pots, you'll have people of different castes living in different apartment complexes, sometimes different neighborhoods. Lower caste people are employed as domestic servants by those of upper caste. Uh, The houses of upper caste people have separate bathrooms, for those whom they employ. They will not use the same bathroom as someone of a lower caste. Um, Usually they never sit down to eat with someone of a lower caste. If you're feeding your servant a meal, there are separate cups, plates, eating utensils that are used only by the lower caste servants that the upper caste people will never use. So it's much like apartheid, apartheid in South Africa or even like racism in America prior to the civil rights movement. It engenders a mindset of superiority and racial hatred. However, unlike apartheid and racism in America, the caste system has not really aroused outcries against injustice or oppression because it operates in this implicit and diabolical fashion. So in my experience in ministry in India, Knowing friends who are ministering there, we've seen much perpetuation of caste even within local Christian congregations. In churches where we ta- teach about brotherhood and oneness in Christ, uh, we've known professing Christians, even third and fourth generation believers, who hold on firmly to their caste identity, refuse to have association with fellow believers from another caste or view them with suspicion. We've seen, I've seen, the heartbreak of people refusing to marry someone from a different caste, a believer, a a professing Christian from a different caste they will reject. They will prefer to marry a non-Christian from their same caste, all right? And, uh, you know, ethnocentric slurs, feelings of racial superiority, suspicious mindset towards people from other castes are very common in the churches. Why have so many churches and Christians in India continued to embrace this? Well, we go back to Donald McGavran, And even to this day, a lot of missionaries who are seeking to plant churches will operate with McGavran's assumptions. They will seek to plant churches along homogenous lines all right, of caste. They're working only within one caste, and so they'll plant churches along caste lines. Okay, McGavran's ideas, that's our next section. You've outlined the caste system. Now we're going to talk about McGavran, caste, and his missiology. All of his ideas, all of his church growth principles, which undergird movement-based missions today, grew out of his missionary experience with the caste system. Uh, he argued that, and I would agree with McGavran that Christian missions, uh, the, the primary goal of missions is evangelism church planting. Right? We, and we all agree with that. Uh, his goal was that we want to see maximum reconciliation of people to God. What he means by maximum reconciliation, in McGavran's writings, what he means is that numerical growth is always the will of God. And a primary indicator, according to McGavran, of the church's faithfulness is numerical growth. So that posed a problem then when faced with this entire barrier of caste, because what McGavran found was that if someone comes to faith in Christ, they break caste, and then if they break caste, you have no further access to their family, to others in society whom they're connected with, uh, all of these things. What he found is, if you allow people to keep their caste, and then you try to do what he called evangelizing people in groups, this might lead to faster growth. So out of this grew McGavran's fundamental tenet of his church growth principles, the church growth movement, what he calls the homogenous unit principle. All right? The homogenous unit principle is not just foundational for McGavran's thinking, it's foundational for a lot of movement missiology today. So what McGavin says is that where people in societies, where people consciousness is high, like the castes in India, he says the decision to become Christian is primarily a racial problem rather than a theological problem. Okay, I quote, he says, people refuse Christ not for religious reasons, not because they love their sins, but precisely because they love their brethren, end quote, He argues if you want the church to grow in evangelism, then, again, listen to McGavern's words, the main problem is how to present Christ so that men can truly follow Him without traitorously leaving their kindred, end quote. And so his solution then is this. He says, we must, I quote, enable men and women to become Christians in groups while still remaining members of their tribe, caste, or people, end quote. So that means Indian converts to Christianity should not be required to renounce their caste, but they should ma- maintain it alongside their newfound Christian faith. He says we should you know, concede to people's preference to become Christians without crossing racial, linguistic, or class barriers. So McGavern advocated forming churches that he calls one-people churches. Basically, mono-ethnic churches of single-caste units. Not just mono-ethnic, mono-caste. And he says, if we don't do this, we are going to win only a few individuals to Christ here and there. We won't see multitudes come to faith. Um, Be clear, McGavran is not arguing that they continue to hold the Hindu theological system. So his argument was, Let's, not, let's do away with the Hindu theological defense of caste, but let's just keep the social structure. And then after people become a Christian and they're still holding on to that caste, eventually we'll nurture them towards brotherhood and oneness and all of that. So his goal, rapid multiplication, faster growth, numerical growth, his problem, the caste system and the barriers it erects, his solution, let's just accommodate that caste system in everything that we do. Okay, So that's McGavran's thinking. And you can see the, the connections to both the unreached people group thinking, which groups people again along these lines. Uh, the movement-based thinking, which says you should plant churches along for, among unreached people groups along mono-ethnic lines. Don't try to mix this or it'll slow things down. So let me critique McGavern now, and I'm going to critique him on five fronts. First, I believe McGavern and missionaries who accommodate the caste system today have failed to understand the diabolical nature of caste. They've failed to understand the diabolical nature of caste. So McGavern believed that the eradication of caste prejudice could only be achieved by people turning to Christ and then eventually you teach them brotherhood oneness and you know nurture them towards these things the problem is that the caste system has deep theological roots in the hindu worldview itself it's part of their worldview that the, you can't separate the theological foundations from the social structure And the fact that he accommodates caste identity in the church means that he misunderstands this. It doesn't lend itself to that neat division. It comes in one package. It's part of the Hindu worldview. It's not simply an ethnic category. It's not simply a racial category. Like I've said, caste is a socio-religious identity. A person's caste inherently defines that person in relative human worth to, to other persons of different castes. So the very fact that I hold on to a caste says I'm of a higher value than this other person here, of this lower caste. So when you retain caste identity, you're retaining part of your Hindu worldview, and it basically amounts to some sort of syncretism. Holding on to caste identity is diametrically opposed to the command, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It places people on a pecking order of human dignity and worth. If we say that we are a redeemed people, if we are those who confess that all human beings are made in God's image, we must repudiate the use of categories that diminish or elevate a person's dignity and worth. The people of God who are redeemed by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ are new creation and we must not identify with categories that subvert identity in Christ. If, one, if people continue to identify themselves and others by caste, then we are regarding people according to the flesh and undermining the fact that we are all new creation in Christ. So people have recognized this for well over a century, Consider this, this is, this is Indians speaking. This is the Madras Native Church Council in 1868. This is what they say, I quote, "...believing the system of Hindu caste to be contrary to the spirit and requirements of the gospel of Christ... "...injurious to the souls of those who are dear to it, and an impediment to the exercise of brotherly love among the members of Christ and to the spread of the gospel in this country, because it inculcates the false idea of pollution on account of birth, because it confines a man and his family forever to the grade in which he was born and prevents his rising to a higher class of society, whatever may be his character and merits, and because it recognizes a combination of individuals assuming authority and power to hinder those to follow who follow the dictates of conscience... We do on those grounds condemn and renounce the system of caste and admit it to be the duty of every Christian man heartily to renounce it and with God's help to discourage it both by words and example. In 1879, the Bangalore Missionary Conference declared that Hindu caste, I quote, both in theory and practice is not a mere civil distinction but emphatically a religious institution and is diametrically opposed to the Christian doctrine of human nature and the brotherhood of all Christians. It is the duty of all missionaries and churches to require its entire renunciation with all its outward manifestations by all those who desire to enter the church of Christ, end quote. Uh, William Carey had a much, much different approach to caste than Donald McGavran and his offspring. Carey says, this is what he says, listen, The holding of caste is incompatible with faith in Christ. Carey refused to baptize anyone who continued to maintain caste distinctions. He required them to break caste before he baptized them. And Carey viewed the renunciation of caste as a way to test the sincerity of new converts. Carey calls caste one of the strangest chains with which the devil ever bound the children of men. And uh, Carey and his band of missionaries in Serampur considered it their sacred duty, John Marshman says, who's one of Carey's compatriots. He says it was their sacred duty to extinguish every vestige of caste in the Christian community, and more especially in the Christian church. At the Lord's Supper, what they did was they made sure, they used a common cup, and they made sure that the person who was of the lowest caste drank from the cup before it passed to people of higher castes. Uh, At at funerals, you know, people of higher castes don't want to defile themselves by coming near a corpse, but at the funeral of lower caste people, they would have the pallbearers be the people of the highest caste. So they worked to eradicate this, and they viewed the rejection of caste as evidence of a person's conversion to Christ. McGavern's methodology of accommodating the caste system in evangelism and church planting, which is a model that continues to be followed today by many movement missiologists and UPG thinkers, perpetuates this evil system and entrenches it in the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's my first critique of McGavran and his missiology surrounding caste. A second point of criticism accommodating the caste system in this way, McGavran's missiology, perpetuates Christian nominalism and ethnocentrism. It perpetuates Christian nominalism. McGavin constantly liked to speak of group conversions and people movements to Christ. We want to foster people movements. We want to foster people converting to Christ in in droves as a group. And uh, what happens there is you're lessening the requirement of obedience to scripture Uh, it reduces the call to repentance right it records people as having made decisions for christ and counts them then as christians without having addressed the root of their pride and their sin and all of these people movements McGavran himself acknowledged you know yeah there's not a lot of it that remains much after but look at all this look at the numbers Uh, He constantly pointed to uh, northeastern India and certain states there where he said there were great people movements among the tribes, and almost everyone who has labored in India, most Christians will tell you, what you see there is a lot of nominal Christianity. Um, This is an Indian theologian I'm going to quote. This is Ken Yanakan in 1985, all right, speaking of this problem. He says, in our zeal to report numbers we have left congregations to continue to follow their hindu thinking and apart from a change in name and place of worship there is little difference between the so-called christians and their hindu neighbors end quote when you soften up the gospel message and when you begin to accommodate false worldviews you end up with christian nominalism nominalist, nominalist christianity and false converts which then leads to our third point of criticism my third point of criticism is that McGavran's missiology is built on a defective theology of conversion a defective theology of conversion it falls short of the biblical teaching particularly in regard to the call to repentance McGavran wants to make it as easy as possible for people to become Christians he says so let's remove this obstacle of needing to break your caste or renounce your caste. Let's continue to maintain that in order to foster what he calls, quote-unquote, Christianiza- Christianization of people in entire caste, creating a people movement. McGavran was the first one to talk about, let's go to receptive people and receptive societies. Okay, So all of the thinking of person of peace and all of that that you see today, if you're familiar with those things, goes back to McGavran. McGavran says... Well, everybody has mixed motives when they come to Christ. He says many people become converts because they perceive in Christianity the opportunity to be- become better off and rise up in society. And he says that's fine. Let's let them do that. Let's let them come to Christ with mixed motives. That's evangelism, step one. And he says, okay, we have this later stage, step two, which is nurture and perfection. And there we begin to teach them you know, what it costs to follow Christ and all of this. So first things first, McGavern fails to see conversion as the supernatural work of God by which the Spirit of God brings dead people to life through the gospel message, brings them from darkness to light and from idols to serve the living God. There are no mixed motives when you encounter Christ and Him crucified and behold the risen Christ through the preaching of the gospel. McGavran wants us to use effective methods among receptive peoples. Well, they're receptive for the wrong reasons. And McGavran's model of conversion has no place for repentance. Repentance involves the renunciation of caste identity, the renunciation of ethnocentric pride. The Bible will not allow us to separate the call to conversion. To Christ from the call to absolute submission to Christ as Lord if you're in Christ you're a new creation you regard no one according to a worldly point of view and that doesn't wait until a you know post-conversion later nurturing stage that begins at the very beginning we lay the axe to the root of ethnocentric pride when we call people to come to Christ that's the central sin that you need to call them to repent of that's the biggest sin of the culture So to say that the church can allow people to convert to Christ without repenting of casteism at their conversion is like saying we should allow active KKK members to convert to Christ without repenting of being Ku Klux Klansmen. Let them wear their hoods and worship in church. Uh, Listen to this testimony from Uh, A dear friend of mine who's pastoring in South India, he was a high-caste Hindu and uh, was brought to faith uh, by the Lord Jesus Christ, and he pastors a congregation today. He says this, after I became a Christian, I developed a great aversion to the caste system. Under the influence of the caste system, I had developed a very ethnocentric mindset. I could think only of my family and my community, the Brahmin community, and relating to anyone outside my community was never easy, never natural. But when the Lord saved me and brought me into his family, he gave me a love for the diversity within the church. For the first time in my life, I was able to relate with people from different linguistic and ethnic groups. In my college Bible study group, I had the privilege of being mentored by a Tamilian who was from a lower caste than mine. A Marwari brother, this is merchant caste, uh, from Rajasthan taught, taught me how to have my personal quiet time with the Lord. Another brother from a different caste taught me how to lead group Bible studies. For the first time, I considered the saints from the northeast part of India, many of whom were from different tribes, as my dear brothers and sisters for whom I must lay down my life. I experienced the truth of the words of the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. My deep appreciation for my union in Christ with these brothers and sisters from different ethnic groups rendered the thought of observing caste system in the church completely distasteful. So that's my third criticism: is McGavran has a deficient theology of conversion. This brother's statements represent what happens when a person is born again. You love the brethren. God puts this love in our hearts. For those whom Christ has bought with his own blood to be members of our family. Next criticism McGavran fails to teach the cost of discipleship. He fails to teach the cost of discipleship. McGavran believed that we should propagate the gospel in ways that make it easy for people to accept Christ. The biblical evidence shows that the call to discipleship is exactly the opposite. He says we want them to become Christians without traitorously having to leave their kindred. At the same time, the Lord Jesus calls us to the possibility of being ostracized and excluded by our kindred. For instance, what did Jesus say? He says that all who follow him would be hated for his name's sake, that we would find enemies among those of our own household, but we must embrace the cross and follow him in spite of all of this. Read Matthew 10, verses 34 to 39. The New Testament repeatedly teaches that persecution and exclusion is expected for followers of Christ. Let us go with Him outside the camp, bearing the reproach that He endured. We follow a rejected Messiah. All of these themes are conspicuously absent from MacGavran's writings. Now, on the one hand, the New Testament authors do commend family relationships and responsibilities, but they don't concern themselves with the question of how people can become Christian without leaving their kith and kin. Conversion to Christ always involves a choice between allegiance to Christ and allegiance to your earthly ties. In the church growth literature... It looks to me like the pragmatic desire for rapid growth and multiplication suppresses this biblical expectation of being ostracized for the sake of Christ. When McGavran says it's, it's a social problem, he's trying to get around the social problem. He doesn't recognize that the social problem is a theological problem. Do you see? The Bible makes it clear that this social problem that you face of being ostracized when you convert to Jesus, arises from a theological problem. People are in rebellion against the living God. They harden their hearts to the truth. They are blinded by the God of this world so that they fail to see themselves as sinners, equally worthy of condemnation as anyone else, and in desperate need of a savior. Their ethnocentric mindset leads them to reject those who would renounce this kind of thinking. So the problem is not social, the problem is profoundly theological. And that leads to our last point of criticism. Finally, the church growth movement, McGavran, and all those who have come after him, prioritize pragmatic effectiveness over biblical faithfulness. Pragmatic effectiveness over biblical faithfulness. They place this great emphasis on church church growth the effective multiplication rapid growth they equate numerical growth with faithfulness but if we look at the bible we get a different picture first throughout the new testament you see the new testament authors and jesus himself attack the sin of ethnocentrism they command believers from different ethnic backgrounds to lovingly accept one another serve one another defer to one another and to live in harmony in local churches together think of paul he is unwavering in his insistence that jews and gentiles have both been reconciled to god through the blood of christ And in Christ, he says, Colossians 3.11, there is not Greek nor Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Christ has broken down the dividing wall of hostility and reconciled us both in one body through the cross to God. We are all part of new creation. We are now new humanity in Christ. And that should be reflected then in the life of our congregations as we live in harmony. Citizenship in the kingdom of God is obtained through faith in jesus christ the lines of the church are not drawn around ethnic and social identity and the call to repentance in the bible includes a call to repentance from ethnic and racial pride jesus castigated the pharisees for this paul reprimanded peter in galatians 2 he rebuked peter for his separation from the gentiles under pressure from the Jewish Christians there, Peter was acting in fear of the Jews, and he begins to separate himself from the Gentile believers. And Paul says this sort of withdrawal compromises the gospel. Right? If Paul was following McGavran's theology, that would be fine. You know, go ahead, yeah, separate. Let's try to win the Jews by separating ourselves from Gentiles. Peter's actions would be justified. If you look at the apostolic model of churches in the scripture, you'll find that they cut across racial, cultural, socioeconomic, and even linguistic lines. You have churches planted that are ministering in the lingua franca, which is Greek. right? Even though some of these people had different native tongues. The church in Jerusalem had both Hebrew Christians and Hellenists. And this kind of multi-ethnic model of church planting, the apostolic model, flows from the pervasive conviction of unity in Christ, that Christ has reconciled us all to God. And as the early church grew, the apostles faced several problems because the churches were multi-ethnic and heterogeneous, right? Uh, But they don't partition the church into homogenous units. Just think about Romans. The, The whole issue of unity across Jew and Gentile is A driving issue in the letter to the romans now it would have been very simple to say all right let's have a one gentile church over here one jewish church over here y'all don't get into each other's faces the gentiles can keep eating their pork sandwiches the jews can keep you know all of the holy days and let's just do that no paul writes 16 chapters of romans and gives them romans 14 and 15 and talks to them about living together Uh, This is also why, by the way, I think I I love Radius's emphasis on unreached language groups rather than artificially constructed unreached people groups. Because often a lot of unreached people group thinking groups the peoples according to these lines. all right, Unhelpfully. Even if people speak the same language, they're separated and we have different mission strategies for different groups of people uh, because they think that 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 will be more effective. Uh, So, for instance, in South India, in Tamil Nadu, where I grew up, uh, the Joshua Project lists Tamil Muslims as an unreached people group. And then, you know, the the thinking is, we need to send missionaries who will be specially focused on these Tamil Muslims. What's the problem with that? The problem with that is, there are numerous Tamil-speaking churches, right, which preach the gospel, and... You know, you're not integrating these Tamil Muslims into those churches because we say they need their own church. You see? But when we think along unreached language groups, it's much more fruitful because here you're saying, okay, the, the barrier of communication is an issue, and so we want to plant along linguistic lines, not socio ethnic lines. Do you follow? So it's not just social and Racial lines, the early church, cut across every line you can imagine. I mean, Paul subverts the social order of slavery. He exhorts slaves and masters to fellowship together as brothers in Christ in one congregation. Right? Think of the book of Ephesians. Think of the book of Philemon. They don't have a separate church for slaves and a separate church for the masters. Faith in Christ, brothers and sisters, faith in Christ obliterates social status, ethnic background, caste identity, all of that is obliterated. No boundaries to fellowship. James commands that there should be no partiality or special treatment given to those who are rich. He assumes that the rich and the poor will fellowship in unity rather rather than being separated. All of this is compromised in the pragmatic desire for rapid growth. So do you see how pragmatic considerations here eclipse biblical faithfulness? Now, strangely enough, they try to justify their methods by pointing to the scriptures. So, uh, if you read Donald McGavran, he will say the New Testament congregations were strikingly monoethnic, and he'll say if you look at the Book of Acts, you know the apostles planted churches first among the Jews and then later among the Gentiles, and these were separate. And I want to say that's just a complete misreading of the book of Acts. Uh, he misses the salvation historical progression in Acts. All right? The reason that it begins with the Jews and then goes to the Gentiles is because it's a salvation historical movement. By that I mean that the Jews had the old covenant scriptures. Jesus is the fulfillment of those scriptures. Uh, God is beginning to regather his people into his church And then the gospel goes forth to Gentiles because in Christ, new Israel, all who are in Christ, is composed of people from both Jew and Gentile. So there's a clear salvation historical movement in Acts, the unfolding of God's redemptive historical plan, which McGavern takes his own preconceived framework and plops it on the text to justify what he's already already decided to do. So, in conclusion, the apostolic model of the church shows us it's unacceptable to partition churches along caste lines. It raises up dividing walls where God has torn them down. It reinforces the status quo of caste-stratified Indian society. And it compromises the witness of the church. David Smith writes, it was precisely the heterogeneous, multi-ethnic nature of the church which made an impact on the divided Roman world and led to the growth of the Christian movement, end quote. I see this in my context. We have a church with people from over 45 nations, and when I'm witnessing to my Muslim friends, they are always, always amazed at how all of these people live in love and harmony with one another. I have a Muslim friend uh, whom, uh, who came to a wedding at my church, and uh, this was an Indian brother and sister getting married, and the wedding coordinator was uh, a white, American, blonde-haired, blue-eyed sister. And, you know, at the wedding reception, she's running around, doing things. And my Muslim friend and his girlfriend were both there, and he leaned across the table. And he said, uh, Aubrey, I wanted to ask you, this uh, blonde lady, is she paid someone you hired to do this? I said, uh, no, she's a member of our church. Why is she doing this for these Indian people? I said, uh, because of the love of Christ. And his girlfriend sitting there says, maybe we should convert right away. (laughs) Friends, a pragmatic desire for rapidly growing and multiplying churches should not lead us to compromise the unity that Christ has purchased with his own blood. May it be so in all our labors that we keep ourselves faithful To God's word, and that we see people from every tribe and tongue and nation embrace Christ as Lord and embrace one another as brother and sister in Him. Amen. May I pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glorious work of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and how you are saving your elect from every nation. We pray, Lord, that we would be faithful in calling people to repentance and a repentance that involves submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and embracing our identity in Him and Him alone. In Jesus' name, amen.